We're entering a new series uh, on the Beatitudes. So our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, where when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, good morning again. It's good to see all of you this morning. I uh, hope that uh, many of you are already making plans to participate in the unsad party uh, variety show that is coming up. Uh, I'll tip my hand. I'm actually going to be performing uh, in the unsad uh, party variety show. I've actually never played on a grand piano before, so I'm actually looking forward to that. Um, so uh, I hope you will... Uh, join me and also take the risk of actually uh, 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 doing something and uh, sharing with us uh, either your uh, gift or lack thereof. Um, the the, the latter is just as, just as good. Uh, it's an unsad party, so if we can laugh, uh, that's another way to uh, enjoy the unsad party. We are, uh, as Sam said, uh, beginning a new sermon series this morning looking at the Beatitudes. Uh, I've entitled this uh, sermon series The uh, Paradox of Human Flourishing. Um, the, uh, as, we, as we are coming to the Beatitudes, we're going to be looking at this series. The Beatitudes, that, that word itself is simply from the Latin word uh, for blessing. Uh, you heard Sam read over and over Blessed are the, blessed are the. That's the word beatitudes. Uh, it's, the, it's the very beginning of Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount. This is the very first thing that he says as he begins his multi-chapter in Matthew uh, discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the late English theologian John Stott once wrote on the sermon, that while the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of Jesus' teaching, it's also arguably, arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. Perhaps by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's help, we as Res Pres as a community might just be a little exception to that observation at least as we seek to embrace what it means to put on and live out these beatitudes that Jesus gives us here in this passage. So as we 
Come now to this passage. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we come here now to this passage, and we all in this room are here uh, with a myriad of different mental states, emotional, psychological states as we sit here this morning. We, some of us come in here, we came in and honestly, uh, we wouldn't be boasting, but we were actually excited to be here. Uh, we, we have, our hearts were engaged as we sang and as we celebrated your goodness. Uh, we, we have longed to meet with you this morning. For others of us, uh, it has been a tough week. For others of us, we have a week in front of us that really is already stirring waves of anxiety and worry. And frankly, we're just doing the best we can to, to keep a good front up, <laughs> to put a good face on so that we could be here this morning. But truth be told, if, if others knew what was going inside of us, they would see a, a whirlwind of anxiety and angst, perhaps even depression. We're hurting. Father, some of us here this morning, um, we, we come uh, in faith. Um, we, we believe these things. Whether we're, we're fully embracing and celebrating or not this morning, we would say that this is our faith. We have embraced it. We are following you, Jesus. Others of us here, truth be told, are not really sure what we believe. And so we're trying to figure that out. And so perhaps even a few years ago, it, the, the most surprising thing that in our minds would be to find ourselves sitting in a worship service on a Sunday morning. But here we are. Would you help convince us that none of us are here by accident this morning? That you arranged it for us to be here because you have something to say to us. So Jesus, by your spirit, come now. Speak around me. Speak through me. Speak in spite of me. But speak to us words of eternal life. Jesus, we pray for Christ's sake, your sake. Amen. Well, I don't uh, think it's a, a debatable statement, and it's not that profound. But at the end of the day, I think everybody here, I think we all, we want to be happy. We, we want to be happy. Uh, consciously or not, <laughs> you and I are constantly making decisions to both reduce our lack of happiness, on the one hand, and to maximize our happiness, on the other. Uh, for us, boredom is an actual vice. <laughs> and so we seek all sorts of things in order just to get that little dopamine hit that our brains crave so much and react so well to when it happens. <laughs> And the things that we seek to, to get this dopamine hit aren't always necessarily bad things on their own. I mean, think about it. I mean, relationships make us happy. Hobbies make us happy. Finding that right job that really fits who we are, our skill set, makes us happy. Looking a certain way and receiving compliments makes us happy. And, and furthermore, as Americans, the pursuit of happiness 
is literally built into our Constitution. <laughs> According to your founding, our founding fathers, it is your God-given right <laughs> to be able to pursue happiness. Now, for a country that actually guarantees you that right and says it comes from God himself, as much as you and I, as, as a country, spend money on stuff to ensure and strive after our happiness, as much as we have access even to prescriptions to make us happy, where would you guess right now the United States, our country, ranks in the world in the top the rankings of happiness across the globe, according to the World Happiness Report? Where would you guess our country, the United States, fits, falls? Take a guess. What did you say? 26. 26. Okay, what else? 60? 60s? All right. So we're actually doing better than, all of, than but what you've all said. <laughs> we're 21st this year. It changes every year, right? This year we, we, we're 21st, according to this report. 21st. Now, okay, so it's better than what you thought. 26 was pretty close. Much better than the 60s. But we're one of the wealthiest, most well-to-do nations in the world, and we're 21st. Where would you think are the happiest nations and countries in the world? According to this report, where would you guess? How did you know? <laughs> the Scandinavian countries, Finland, Norway, Sweden, also some North, northern, western European countries. The Netherlands, Switzerland, they, they're up there in the top. But here's the problem with the pursuit of happiness. It's chronically elusive. <laughs> and so the very things that you and I look to for happiness often become the very breeding ground and the manufacturing plant for our unhappiness. Relationships don't always go the way we wish they would. It actually can become tremendous sources of unhappiness. Alcohol, something that the Bible actually tells us was given to us by God to make our hearts glad. It's actually a depressive. <laughs> and when abused leads to all sorts of problems and unhappiness. And of course, we never fully look like those people on TikTok that we want to look like. <laughs> all right, so John, why are you starting this sermon on the Beatitudes talking about happiness? <laughs> where are you going with this? Here's where. Sometimes these Beatitudes, some translators actually translate these, this word that in our ESV version, blessed, translate it, happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. And the reason for that is that the translators are doing their best to try to relate the rich Hebrew idea of blessing for us, for us English-speaking Westerners. You see, there's actually, there is an aspect to these Beatitudes that overlaps with what you and I are after in our pursuit of happiness. 
Not that these are going to give us that dopamine hit the way a sporting event or a musical concert might, but they scratch a certain itch that we as humans have and that we use things that make us happy to scratch it. There's an overlap. But when Jesus says, blessed are the, he means much more than what you and I mean by simply the idea of happiness. I mean, he, he must, right? I mean, one of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn. <laughs> My book, Mourning, is mutually exclusive from being happy. What Jesus is offering here, what he's claiming to offer here, is far more than a feeling that is constantly fleeting and elusive. When Jesus describes the Beatitudes, he's describing a state where human beings genuinely flourish. Where human beings know and experience deep down settled joy and contentment to experience this life, as Jesus says, fully and abundantly. Something far more profound, something far more fulfilling, more rewarding, more powerful than simply happiness. It's an extraordinary claim, actually, that Jesus is making here. Because, and because this claim is so extraordinary, he's, he's either a narcissistic egomaniac to put this before us and make the case that true human flourishing happens here, or he's someone who has genuine insight into the human experience and condition that you and I are not naturally attuned to. But for now, hold that thought on the extraordinary claims that he's making here. We'll come back to that in a second. Before we do, we need to also understand that Jesus has a much greater and wider-reaching reason for why he's painting this picture of what the path to human flourishing looks like than simply for the individual's lives and for their sakes that he's talking to. It's not just simply for you as an individual. You see, immediately following this list of Beatitudes, in the next verse, the next couple of verses, Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He, in fact, charges them in verse 16 of this chapter 5, let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Collectively, as a community, Jesus' disciples, his followers, and we as Res Press are given the charge to let your light so shine. And the your there, let your light, is not singular. It's plural. The light is singular. It's the southern, the, the your there is the southern language, y'all. It's the plural. Let y'all's, plural, light, singular, shine before others. In other words, collectively, as a community, be a light in how you relate to each other and how you relate collectively to the watching world. That's what Jesus is charging and commissioning 
his disciples, his followers, with. Another uh, British theologian, the late British theologian and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm never tired of saying that what the church needs today is not to organize some evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but rather to simply begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would say, what is the secret of this? What does this community know? What does this community have that I don't have? Now, just another plug, but a direct application of Jesus' charge there to let our light so shine before others is March 5th, an opportunity not simply to sleep in because we're not having a worship service here, but to join us collectively and as a community to love our city, to show up at Edward Cleef Park and bless Madison by cleaning up, which I'm sure are you... RUF students know of, I mean, it's, it's, it, my understanding is it's a, it's a, it's, it's right there next to college and it, it can get kind of dirty, I guess, on, on weekends. Am I, is that right? Is that the place where I'm talking about? Is it like a party area? Like we're, right, anyway, <laughs> trust me, it's really dirty. It's an opportunity for us to love our city collectively as a community. And so this Sermon on the Mount is all about what letting our collective light shine forth looks like. Jesus is going to get very specific about how we use our money, what we do with our money, how we as his followers, what we do with anger towards one another, how we even pray. The sermon is as practical as it is profound. But the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the pictures of the character of Jesus' followers. Not necessarily the specific act, but the character. He starts with the character. And so when he gives the charge, let y'all's light shine before others, he's not asking us as the church to, to virtue signal. <laughs> he's not saying, hey, tell the rest of the world how good of a people you are. No, the Beatitudes are to shape how we're to be that light. How we're to be that collectively as a community. Now, before we go any further, we need to acknowledge, as you might surmise from our approach to the Genesis series, that it's very important that we do understand the context behind this passage <laughs> and where these Beatitudes fit into Matthew's gospel in order to understand how to even begin to appropriate them into our lives. We saw in Genesis how important it was to understand the context. Context is important here as well. As we come to, so just bear with me, this is going to be a couple minutes of kind of a more Bible study-ish feel, but just hang with me. You're going to see the importance of this in a second. As we come to Matthew's gospel, Matthew is wanting us to hear and to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who fully represents fully personifies, and fully embodies all of Israel. Israel were the descendants of Abraham that we saw last week. God promised would be the people group he would use to bring his blessing 
to all the nations of the earth after humanity had gone astray. And so Jesus doesn't simply show up on the screen of human history in a vacuum. He was connected to and related to his covenant people and God's covenant promises. And so in chapter 1, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy that shows that Jesus is both son of David and son of Abraham. Two very key individuals in key moments in Israel's heritage with whom God made specific covenantal promises with as his grand plan of redemption came to fruition in space and time. Matthew then, in chapter 2, gives us Jesus' birth story, which includes a time in Egypt. And subsequently, Matthew notes he was there and leaves Egypt with his family so that out of Egypt, God says, I called my son. Why? Because the first time God, Yahweh, expressed himself as a father to his people was when he called Israel, his son, out of Egypt. In chapter 3, Matthew then recounts Jesus being tempted in the wilderness after he'd been there for 40 days, wanting us to remember that Israel also was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. In other words, Jesus is what Israel was designed to be, and that is a light to the rest of the nations. Living under the reign and kingship of Yahweh, but that Israel failed to fully be. And then something switches in chapter 4. At the end of his testing, Matthew says, at the end of Jesus' testing, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus now beginning to claim something about himself and his ministry that will in the end lead to his brutal, not beautiful, brutal crucifixion. <laughs> he is claiming to be inaugurating the long-promised kingdom of God where Yahweh's good and just and benevolent reign is fully known and realized on this earth. And then immediately after that, and immediately prior to the Sermon on the Mount, we're told in verse 23 of chapter 4, and then he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, healing every, excuse me, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Strikingly, if we were to fast forward, in chapter 9, that verse is almost verbatim repeated. Verse 35, chapter 9, Matthew says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. The repeated phrases are therefore intended to be bookends. <laughs> and what are they bookending? They're bookending the proclamation of the kingdom. What that looks like, this is Jesus teaching for three chapters his discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, and then he spends two more chapters actually healing, demonstrating the kingdom is here. It's with me. I'm bringing the kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is here, and this is what it looks like to live according to my kingdom. Okay, that was a lot. 
But that tells us what this is doing here. Jesus doesn't give us the Sermon on the Mount as a means to somehow organize a utopia on earth. That's not what's happening. It's not a list of things to do in order to get to heaven one day when we die. It's teaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And to start the sermon off, he starts with the Beatitudes. The character pursuit that is to characterize every one of his followers, everyone who are pursuing his kingdom are called to display these Beatitudes. It is the character of his followers before he gets to the conduct of his followers. He starts with the human heart. That's what these Beatitudes are. It's a picture. It's a look inside the heart of one who's following Jesus. This is what the internal processes look like in those who are embracing the reality of the kingdom of God as it's breaking into the kingdoms of this world. But if you're paying attention to the list, if you were hearing and listening closely as Sam read the list of Beatitudes, you quickly would have noticed these are not things that naturally come to us as human beings. They're descriptions of a disposition that is produced, can be produced only by grace alone and must, be, must come from outside of us. Because did you notice the challenge of some of these Beatitudes? These Beatitudes are completely counterintuitive to the way you and I naturally are inclined to think how this world works. They're, in fact, paradoxical. But much of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God is this way because Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom in comparison to how kingdoms in this world are run. Just remind you some of the things that Jesus said that were counterintuitive and paradoxical. If anyone would come after me, they must first deny themselves, take up their cross, and then follow me. Elsewhere, Jesus says if one were to find or save their life, they must first lose it. Elsewhere, similarly, whoever saves his or her life for my sake will find it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He or she who would be great in the kingdom must first become like a child. Elsewhere, similarly, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And the counterintuitive and paradoxical nature of the economy of Jesus' kingdom is on full display in this list of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They are the ones. Yes, the mourners are the ones who will actually be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, the meek, will inherit the earth. Maybe Jesus misspoke there. The meek inherit the earth. Maybe Matthew misheard. Maybe he miswrote. Matthew, I'm sure this is not a misprint. How is it possible? Have you seen how the world works? The meek inherit the earth. 
And then Jesus finishes by saying, Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. Now, I don't care on whose account it happens. I don't like it when people falsely accuse me. I don't feel blessed. I don't feel like I'm experiencing human flourishing in that moment. But just because from our vantage point, these are paradoxical in nature. They are counterintuitive. They go against what you and I normally would think how this world ought to and does run. Doesn't necessarily logically follow that they're untrue. Perhaps it shouldn't surprise us Jesus is saying, this is coming, this is a different type of kingdom. Elsewhere, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. That doesn't mean my kingdom is way out there in the sky somewhere. It means the very principles, the economy of how my kingdom runs is going to be counter to what you're used to in any kingdoms you've ever lived in in this life. And that's why he tells his disciples. That's why we pray each week, our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come Your will be done here, here, as it currently is being done in heaven. That's not a prayer that you and I go to heaven one day. That's praying that this earth, the economies of this world, the justice systems of this world, the nations of this world would be changed and transformed by the ways of the heavenly reign. And Jesus intends that that's going to happen through his people, through you if you're a follower of Jesus. And it's going to start small. Jesus says, like a mustard seed through a church plant. But the reality is they are counterintuitive. And we're going to see more of that as we go. Close with this. There was a climber. He's now a pretty expert climber. His name is Ben Anderson. This is many years ago. I honestly don't remember how many years ago this was. He was a novice mountain climber at the time, climbing the Lyle Glacier at Yosemite National Park. Are there any climbers in here? Did I say that correctly? Lyle Glacier. Did I get that right? One of the first times he's climbing, it's a pretty tough mountain. I think it's like 13,000, 14,000 feet. His guide tells him at the very beginning of the climb, today I want you to do exactly what I do. I want you to follow me exactly where I go. Don't try to do it your own way. Follow me. Start the climb early in the morning. Sun's bright, beautiful day, no cloud in the sky. Sun's beating down on their back. As the day goes on, more and more distance gets between Ben and his guide. And he's realizing he is not going to catch him. The the distance is just going to continue to grow. And when he was pretty far up the mountain, he he noticed that his guide started to do almost a 90-degree turn on the mountain and was kind of going sideways. So that in Ben's mind, he thought, instead of going straight up and then over following the guide, I'll just cut him off. I've got an angle to him. I can get there quicker. So he begins heading that direction, trying to catch his guide. About halfway to him, he realizes he made a potentially fatal decision. 
he ends up, what he later described, inside of a cul-de-sac of ice. That's how he described it. This is late in the afternoon. The sun had been beating down all day. There was, there was the, the, the ice had slowly been melting. Now the sun's starting to set behind the mountains. It's refreezing, and he realizes as he's there, he can't go any further. There's no way to continue, and he can't go back, and he's stuck. He eventually gets the attention of his guide, who is able to work himself down and get within about eight or nine feet of where Ben is. That's as close as he could get to him. And he told Ben, Ben, we have to get off of this mountain tonight. Which means I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to seem very counterintuitive. But I'm going to ask you to follow my precise instructions. And you're going to have to trust me that I know what I'm talking about. He pulled out a, a, a little hammer and he chiseled two little notches in the side of the mountain, about halfway between him and Ben. And he said, here's what you're going to do. And it's going to be all in one motion. You cannot pause at any point in this process. He said, I want you to take your left foot. I want you to kick it into the first notch, the notch on the left. In the same motion, take your right foot, put it into the other notch, the one on the right. And exactly at that moment, do not do what your body's going to scream out to do. Do not lean forward to the mountain. I want you to lean slightly away from the mountain. If you lean towards the mountain, as slick as it is now, your feet will come out from those notches and you will plummet 10,000 feet to your death. When you lean back, I want you to lean, pull your hand out. I will grab you and then pull you where I am standing. For 30 minutes, Ben had to decide... <laughs> Is this guy an egomaniac, narcissist, <laughs> crazy lunatic to ask me to do such a thing? Or does he know what he's talking about? And he realized that I have no option. I have to trust this guy. And so he recounts the story. He did exactly what, ben, what the guide said. He took his left foot, put it in the notch, took his right foot, put it in the notch. And he said everything within him at that moment said, grab the mountain. And by faith... He leaned back. His guide was able to grab his backpack and in, that, in one motion pull him over to where he was standing. And then he was able to get him up high enough onto the next cliff where they could rest. These beatitudes that Jesus asks us, tells us about, makes the case here to us will seem very counterintuitive. And we have to make the decision, can we trust Jesus enough? Does he know what he's talking about when he asks of me? When he says of me to be his follower, that is actually the meek that inherit the earth. That's actually blessed when you're reviled for my sake. That's the challenge that will be before us in this sermon series. But the beauty is we have one, a guide who has gone before us, who has lived out every one of these, who has demonstrated that this is, in fact, the beautiful, glorious way of his kingdom. And he offers us to follow him into that and participate in seeing his kingdom come to earth as it currently is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do admit 
that Jesus, sometimes you ask things of us that are counterintuitive, that go against everything that we believe, that we know, that we think how this world runs, what we've observed. (laughs) We recognize that as your followers, there will be times when you will ask us of things that will require us to trust that you truly are a good king that you are a just and benevolent king and that you do not ask us, you do not ask us to follow you into places that you have not already been. But that in that commissioning, in that charging of us to follow you, you will provide what we need. We thank you, Jesus, that you ultimately demonstrated on the cross ultimate meekness because in the end, you did inherit the earth. May we trust that you can be followed even into the counterintuitive and paradoxical beatitudes that you speak of here at the beginning of your sermon. Help us to believe that we pray for your sake, Jesus.